fraternal greetings and a warm welcome to you. We're glad that you could join us on the Ashlers podcast, a space for the world's oldest fraternity to shine some light through Masonic paper readings, discussions, interviews, and more. Freemasonry is so old that our lifetime wouldn't be enough to capture its grandeur in the entirety. However, all things great should begin somewhere, and so we are thrilled to start off with season one, which will focus on Freemasonry and its roots in India, one state at a time. As a disclaimer, the thoughts and opinions expressed here are solely of the participants and do not represent any official positions including those of any grand lodge or constitutions thereof. Best efforts have been made to keep the conversation on the level for brethren and non-Masons alike. Hello and welcome folks to another episode of The Ashlers. And this is the final episode of the bonus two-part episode that we had as a grand finale for season one. Just to do a quick recap, we have covered all the states and union territories of India where masonry has spread, essentially chronicling the spread of Freemasonry in India since the time it began in the 1700s to date. Now, we went a step further and created a two-part bonus episode where we are covering the spread of masonry and a little bit of history of the countries that today border India. And to start off, I am Shishir. And I'm Rinesh. Perfect. So, Rinesh, with that intro, you want to go ahead and detail out what countries have we covered? Yeah. So, the countries that actually share borders with India are Afghanistan and Pakistan to the northwest, China, Nepal and Bhutan to the north, Bangladesh and Myanmar to the east, and Sri Lanka and Maldives in the south. Now, to add to what Rinesh just said, in the previous episode, that is the episode 23, that is part one, we covered the countries where masonry once existed at one point of time, but today it does not. There's one special call out for Afghanistan because one of its emirs was a mason. And, you know, that's a very interesting story. I would highly recommend to you to check it out if you haven't heard that one. It's a very nice story, among many others. Today, this episode will cover those countries where masonry has existed and it still exists. Namely, we will be talking about Nepal and Sri Lanka. Now, let's start off with Nepal. What is the origin of the word Nepal? Well, that's kind of uncertain. But according to Hindu mythology, Nepal derives its name from an ancient Hindu sage called Ne, referred to variously as Nemuni or Nemi. According to Pashupati Purana, Nepal is a place protected by this sage called Ne. Now, the history of Nepal is quite interesting. There are a lot of prehistoric sites of Paleolithic. Mesolithic and even Neolithic origins that have been discovered in the Shivalik hills of Dang district in Nepal. The earliest inhabitants of modern Nepal and adjoining areas are believed to be people 
from the Indus Valley Civilization. That sounds interesting because I remember learning about Indus Valley Civilization in history class back in school. Um, the Shakya clan, you know, it formed an independent republic state known as the Shakya Ganarajya during the late Vedic period, that is between 1000 to 500 BCE. Its capital was called Kapilavastu. And the most famous Shakya whom we all know is Siddhartha Gautama, also known as Gautam Buddha, whose teachings became the foundation of Buddhism. And just to add one more thing, he gained enlightenment in the district called Gaya, which is in today's uh, Indian state of Bihar. What's more, Dinesh? There were many dynasties in Nepal. And after decades of rivalry between these medieval kingdoms, modern Nepal was unified in the later half of the 18th century by a person named Prithvi Narayan Shah, the ruler of the small principality of Gorkha, formed a unified country from a number of independent hill-high states. He was successful in bringing together these diverse religio-ethnic groups under one rule. He was in favor of adopting a closed-door policy with regards to the British. We will understand what exactly the repercussions of these things are. After 1800, the heirs of Prithvi Narayan Shah proved unable to maintain the firm political control over Nepal. A period of internal turmoil followed. The rivalry between Nepal and the British East India Company over the princely states, especially bordering the Nepal and British India, led to the Anglo-Nepalese War. 1814 to 1816. Now, this is very interesting and there is an interesting piece which she will be able to add later. In this war, Nepal suffered substantial losses. Now, the Treaty of Sugali was signed in 1816, ceding large parts of the Nepalese controlled territories to the British. Now, we might think that what is so interesting about it? But in spite of the fact that Nepal suffered losses, British East India Company was really amazed with the tenacity with the way these people fought. And as I said, Shishir will be able to add how exactly it helped them. Now, then came Jang Bahadur Rana. Now, his regime was a tightly centralized autocracy, pursued a policy of isolating Nepal from external influences. This policy helped Nepal maintain its independence during the British colonial era, but he was also staunchly pro-British and assisted the British during the Indian Rebellion of 1857 and later in both the world wars. It's kind of like he knew when to play the game and with whom to play the game. At the same time, despite of Chinese claims, the British supported Nepalese independence in 1923. Same year, Britain and Nepal formed a treaty, a treaty of perpetual peace and friendship, which superseded the Sugali Treaty of 1860. Shishir, would you like to share the interesting bit which I was talking about? Yep. And there's one addition from my side. Uh, I just remembered, Rinesh, there is mm -hmm. actually one very specific or a very special gun which, uh, mm -hmm. you know, came out of the British and Nepalese generals, you know, teaming up together. And I think there is a, just a handful of those guns in existence today. It uses a very specific bullet and it's kind of like a machine gun, but with several barrels, if I remember correctly. It's very unique and I would encourage people to Google it. It's really fascinating. Now, to come to the interesting bit that Rinesh was talking about, um, you know, this bit of history shows that Nepal really didn't take much from the, Brit uh, from the British, but rather gave more to them. 
a perfect example of that is the gurkha regiments now anyone who's wondering what gurkha is all about and if you have never heard of it this is going to get interesting you know after suffering heavy casualties in the invasion of nepal the british east india company signed a peace deal which allowed it to recruit from the ranks of the gurkhas whom they had fought following the partition of india in 1947 an agreement between nepal india and britain meant four of the 10 gurkha regiments from the indian army were transferred over to the british army eventually becoming the gurkha brigade the brigade of gurkhas is a collective name which refers to all the units in the british army that are composed of nepalese gurkha soldiers i remember seeing the gurkha memorial in whitehall court in uh, london and that is when i kind of was wondering why exactly there is a memorial statue of a gurkha from nepal and that's when i actually read about it that india and britain are the two countries which actually recruit them uh, for their gurkha regiments and we are the only two countries which actually has the uh, what should i say the honor of having them anyway this actually explains why the masonic lodges entered the country only in 1967 Uh, there is one lodge in nepal which is the kathmandu of nepal lodge number 8194 under the english constituency you should check their facebook page and the logo they have used it has the two kukris which is basically like uh, okay i don't think i can actually explain it in any manner you might as well google it it has two kukris on top of the square and compasses which is the awesome symbol which the gorkhas have in my childhood i remember you know seeing a kukri and even handling it and let me mm-hmm. say it's an awesome looking weapon it's a, it's a blade but it's not a straight blade it's it's slightly curved and uh, like a really sharp one can cut your fingers really quick if you're not careful with it so yeah yeah for our i think for our uh, listeners who might be able to match it with something it's like a machete but obviously yeah. as uh, she said it's a little curved and a shorter version of it all right so now moving over to the next country that is sri lanka Now in antiquity Sri Lanka was known to travelers by a variety of names according to Mahavamsa the legendary prince Vijaya named the island Tambapani or copper red hands or copper red earth because his followers hands were reddened by the red soil of the area where he landed in hindu mythology the term lanka appears but it's unknown whether it refers to the modern day state of sri lanka or not ancient greek geographers called it taprobana or taprobani from the word tambapani the persians and arabs referred to it as sarenib the origin of the word serendipity from sanskrit simhala dvipa selao the name given to sri lanka by the empire when it arrived in 1505 was transliterated into english as ceylon as a british crown colony the island was then known as ceylon it achieved independence as the dominion of ceylon in 1948 the country is now known in sinhala as sri lanka lanka was taken from the ancient name of the island and joined with the word sri meaning resplendent 
So Sri Lanka means resplendent island. Sri Lanka possesses a historical tradition preserved in written form by Buddhist chroniclers. Now the earliest of the extant chronicles is the Deepavamsa which is the island's chronicle compiled probably by Buddhist nuns in the 4th century common era. The Deepavamsa was followed by the Mahavamsa which is the great chronicle and its continuation called the Kulavamsa which is the little chronicle. Now together these chronicles constitute a literary record of the establishment and growth of Sinhalese political power and of Sri Lanka's sorry Sri Lankan Buddhism. However, the documents must be used with caution and always in conjunction with archaeological material. Now according to Sinhalese tradition, Buddhism was first brought to Sri Lanka by a mission sent out from eastern India during the reign of the Mauryan emperor Ashoka. The leader of this mission to Sri Lanka was Mahendra or Mahinda who is described as Ashoka's son. Now Mahendra and his colleagues met the Sinhalese king Tissa to whom they delivered a sermon on Buddhism. The king was brought into the Buddhist fold and he invited Mahendra and his followers to the city. Many embraced the new religion, some taking holy orders and joining the Buddhist Sangha. The monastery of Mahavihara was established and it became the prime center of Buddhism in Sri Lanka. Mahendra then sent for his sister Sangamitta who arrived with a branch of the bow tree the bodhgaya which Shishir actually told right in the beginning under which Buddha had attained enlightenment now the sapling was ceremonially planted in the city Sangamitta founded an order of nuns and a stupa now through the conversion of king Tissa and the missionary activity of monks in the village by the 2nd century BCE The Sinhalese had accepted Buddhism and this faith helped produce a unity and consciousness on which subsequent political and economic strength was founded. Now, here comes the different angle to it. Anuradhapura, Polanaruwa, then various kingdoms like Jaffna, Dambadinia, Gampola, etc. These were all the various kingdoms which came after that. Now, the first Europeans to visit Sri Lanka in modern times were the Portuguese, Lorenzo de Almeida. who arrived here in 1505 and found that the island were divided into seven warring kingdoms and were unable to fend off intruders well classic example that unity is strength the portuguese found, founded a fort at the port city of colombo in 1570 and gradually extended their control over the coastal areas In 1592 the Sinhalese moved their capital to the inland city of Kandy a location more secure against attack from invaders now intermittent warfare continued through the 16th century people actually disliked the portuguese occupation and its influences welcoming any power who might rescue them then came the dutch when the dutch captain joris van spilbergen landed in 1602 the king of kandy raja singhe ii appealed to him for help Now he made a treaty with the Dutch in 1638 to get rid of this Portuguese who ruled most of the coastal areas of the island. Now the main conditions of the treaty was that the Dutch were to hand over the coastal areas they had captured to the Kandian king in return for a Dutch trade monopoly over the island. Do you think it would have happened? <laughs> Definitely not. The agreement was unfortunately breached by both parties. The Dutch captured Colombo in 1656 and the last Portuguese stronghold near Jaffna Patnam in 1658. By 1660 they controlled the whole island except their landlocked kingdom of Kandy. The Dutch unfortunately levied far heavier taxes on the people than the Portuguese had done. 
Now, during the Napoleonic War, Great Britain, fearing the French control of the Netherlands might deliver Sri Lanka to the French, occupied the coastal areas of the island with little difficulty. And I will explain you why that little difficulty. In 1802, the Treaty of Amiens formally ceded the Dutch part of the island to Britain and it became a crown colony. In 1803, the British invaded the Kingdom of Kandy which is the same, the inland area which Rajasinghe actually used to rule. Now, they invaded the Kingdom of Kandy in the first Kandyan War, but were repulsed. By 1815, Kandy was annexed in the second Kandyan War, finally ending Sri Lankan independence. The smooth transition of the government between Dutch and English happened only because the two governors in that place were Freemasons. And there comes the Freemasonic angle. Let's talk about Freemasonry in Sri Lanka. Freemasonry was introduced to Sri Lanka in 1768 by the Dutch. By 1796, there were four Masonic lodges on the island of Ceylon under the Dutch constitution. Three in Colombo and one in Gal. Between 1800 and 1863, nine British military lodges, each attached to its own regiment, are known to have worked on the island. Of this ambulatory lodges, four were Irish, four were English and one was Scottish. Listeners, if you would have remembered, time and time again, we have seen how the military or how the working class from Europe, especially in this case, obviously from United Kingdom, British, uh, England, Scottish or Irish, they used to travel across and that's why the whole Freemasonry was spread. Now, from the second half of the 18th century onwards, Freemasonry had become a global institution. One by one, lodges were created throughout the British Isles Europe, North America, and rest of the world. The Brotherhood expanded as the British Empire expanded. The primary instrument responsible for the building of this vast network of lodges, as we have always mentioned, were the regimental lodges. By the early 19th century, every regiment in the British Army boasted at least one lodge that accompanied it on its imperial assignments. Freemasons in the army helped create permanent lodges among civilian population in colonies of all types. Freemasonry spread so effectively in the British colonies that by the late 1880, the Grand Master Mason of Scotland was able to state, quote, wherever our flag has gone, we are able to say there has masonry gone. And we have been able to found lodges for those who have left our shores to found fresh empires, unquote. Just a quick glance or a glimpse about the Irish military lodges who played a major role in the expansion of Freemasonry in the world. Listen to the names. In 1802, Lodge Number 863, which is the 89th Foot and 2nd Battalion of Royal Irish Fusiliers. In 1817, Lodge Number 227, which is the 46th Foot, 2nd Battalion, Duke of Convoy's Light Infantry. 1820, Lodge Number 83, 83rd Foot, 1st Battalion of Ulster Rifles, and so and so on. Just look at the list. Let me just come quickly to the current list of lodges, which is where our interest actually lies. The list of English lodges. St. John's Lodge number 454 EC uh, in Candy. St. George Lodge number 2170, which was warranted in 1886. Oh, by the way, the St. John's Lodge was warranted in 1838. We also have an Adams Peak Lodge. Very unique name. Number 2656, English Constituency, 1887. 
then we have the Grant Lodge number 2862, Duke of Connaught Lodge number 2940, the Novara Elia Lodge number 2991, the Kurunegala Lodge number 3629, the Orion Lodge number 5130, uh, Robert Coolrich Scott Lodge number 7784, Kumara Nayagam Lodge number 7784. Let's come to the Irish Lodges. Sphinx Lodge number 107, Uh, a special shout out to Sphinx Lodge because one of the brother from Sphinx Lodge actually helped me in this entire uh, information about Sri Lanka as well. Uh, Leinster Lodge number one one five, Dimbula Lodge number two ninety eight, Serendib Lodge number nine zero five. Then we come to the Scottish lodges, Lodge Bonnie Doon number six one one and Saint Andrews Lodge number one eight three two. Interesting fact about Scottish is. Scottish Scottish lodges before they entered India they had actually landed up in Sri Lanka and uh, Shishir do you want to add something about the Adams Peak lodge oh yes um this is going to be interesting so according to local tradition when adam and eve were expelled from paradise or from eden the garden of eden they landed on adam's peak the Colo- the the conical mountain which is um around 2243 meters or 7359 feet high is located in the center of the island is called is also called shripada in sinhala meaning sacred footprint it refers to the footprint shaped mark at the summit which is believed by the buddhists to be that of gautam buddha christian and islamic traditions assert that it is a footprint of adam left when he first set foot on earth after having been cast out of paradise giving it the name adam's peak according to hindu legends is the footprint of hanuman or shiva coming to the masonic temple in colombo it's called the victoria masonic temple it was built in 1901 during the british rule a little bit of a history on that In 1897 a gathering of senior freemasons proposed the construction of a temple building in commemoration of Queen Victoria's diamond jubilee but construction was delayed to accommodate the land acquisition preparation of plans and the raising of funds now after the necessary funding was raised by subscription and debentures the cornerstone of the building was laid on 27th September 1900 by John Norman Campbell who was a freemason and a philanthropist and the building was finally completed in august 1901 with the formal opening on 1st september 1901 now the temple was designed by edward skinner who was a freemason and an associate of the royal institute of british architects and built by the colombo commercial company the building was built in the neo georgian style mixed with elements of eastern architecture i have met some brethren in india who had actually traveled to sri lanka and they really loved that building and the way the entire uh, I would say the design. I would say everything. Like this, this is something which I found on the internet, by the way. Then the main doors of the lodge lead to a grand hall showcasing the emblems of the sixteen lodges across Colombo, Kandy, and Kurunegal. A grand wooden stairwell leads to a floor of which houses a centuries-old library. Wow, Now that's heaven. Now this library extensively covers Freemason history, antiquities, jurisprudence, and literature. The classic well-preserved bookcases houses literature brought from London by the first freemasons to Colombo which is still used by members. The Victoria Masonic Temple surpasses the antiquities ordinance with regard to historical buildings in urban area because being over 100 years old and thus ensures that it is prevented from demolition in the face of urban development. 
In 2002, Sri Lanka Post featured the Victoria Masonic Temple on its 4 rupee 50 stamp to commemorate the centenary anniversary of the temple. Now, the interesting fact is that due to the partition of India into India and Pakistan in August 1947, the Grand Lodge of all Scottish Freemasonry in India changed its nomenclature from November 1948 to the Grand Lodge of United Scottish Freemasonry of India and Pakistan. From July 1955, it was called the Grand Lodge of United Scottish Freemasonry of India and Ceylon, when lodges in Pakistan were formed into a separate district. Now, GLASFI, now that's quite the abbreviation, it's like a word in itself. You know, it stands for Grand Lodge of All Scottish Freemasonry in India. And the Latin motto below the coat of arms is Indos ad extremos lux, which can be freely translated as the light at southernmost India. Wow. I like that, right? Like, that's a nice way of showcasing uh, where you are actually stationed. Uh, considering Grand Lodge of Scottish Freemason in India literally took care of uh, that India, which is the British India at that time, uh, which obviously consisted of India and Pakistan, and then Sri Ceylon as well. And they remembered that point and to say the light at southernmost India. Wow. True. And and Rinesh, and you know, even the listeners, it's, uh, it's quite interesting that we're talking about this uh, today because today happens to be uh, 14th August. And 15th August is tomorrow. So 14th August, for those of our listeners who may not know, is the Independence Day of Pakistan. Happy Independence Day to them and to us in advance. Yes. All right. So that brings us uh, towards the closure. But I think there are a couple of people Rinesh would like to thank. And, you know, thanks from my side too. But Rinesh, please take it forward. A special shout out to the brethren who actually helped me. Most worshipful brother Jacques Hugabert who actually was able to give me all the information which I've been able to speak in front of you for Sri Lanka. And he was kind enough to answer some of my silly queries. And another special shout out to Brother Shehan Perez from Sphinx Lodge, who actually were able to give me those small tidbit information which kind of bridged the entire story. Thank you very much for both of you. Uh, Brethren, in our last episode, I did speak about a book and where the overall concept of what Freemasonry in this part of our country is all about. Let me just quote the book once again. This book is Builders of Empire by Jessica Harland Jacobs. In 1785, the Reverend Joshua Weeks explained to Masons gathered to hear his St. John's Day's address in Halifax, Nova Scotia, that they possessed a key that would give them, quote, admittance to the brotherhood, unquote, anywhere in the world. I quote again, Were the providence of God to cast you on an unknown shore, were you to travel through any distant country, though ignorant of its language, ignorant of its inhabitants, ignorant of its custom, he assured his listeners, the key would open the treasures of their charity. Now, the following year, on the other side of the Atlantic, the Grand Lodge of England issued a proclamation that revealed the profound accuracy of his remark. Freemasonry's reputation for taking care of its members had become so well-known and its network so extensive that apparently, imposters were after its treasures. And when I'm saying the word treasures, it's with the double quote. Don't you think that is actually interesting? Looking at the entire history which we have been able to chronicle, 
from all of our states of India, the United Territories and our neighboring nations. What do you want to add? I think, you know, we have asked each other this same question in the past few episodes and, you know, by and large, it's, it's, if I can just summarize it, you know, I can just say that it really is eye-opening how, uh, you know, the way the concept of universal brotherhood and being a good person got propagated into India all the way from the UK and, you know, other countries. And the same heart and soul resides today in, you know, most of the countries, even today, it survived. Some places it didn't for whatever reason, but in some places it has. And chronicling that journey just shows the, uh, how do I say this? The, the inherent nature of a human being to spread its wings, but at the same time, while exploring unknown lands and cultures, also find a sense of familiarity and, you know, uh, establish the ideals of goodness, of, of universality in, in whatever way possible. And seeing how it has thrived in, in, in India and also in the adjoining countries is heartwarming to say the least. And I truly hope that, you know, masonry continues to thrive in the same way. Um, we, you know, get in initiates who are, you know, people who can really believe in this cause and take it forward in their own way. What do you say, Rinesh? I completely agree with your point. I would say that our process or rather our journey has actually taught us more compared to what we would have actually heard from others. And that was our, if I'm not wrong, Shishir, that was exactly our aim, right? To ensure that we share the right information. Uh, yes, by the way, listeners, we might actually have some faults here and there. And that is exactly why we have this like an open forum, right? In case if you feel that there are certain things which we might have misquoted or which might have not been correct, please do reach out to us so that we can correct that. Because that's the idea, right? You and me are in a journey of this life. And it is not supposed to be walked alone. It is supposed to be walking with somebody else as well. We are all travelers. So let's travel together and make sure that in this process, keep our life better, keep our family's life better, and in that way, keep the society better, and finally, the country better. So hoping that we actually continue this journey, continue this process, and keep learning from each other. There are many things which we can actually like, and there are many things which we might hate. So just take the good things out of everybody and try to emulate some of them, try to enhance those things and encapsulate all of that in you so that you become the better version of yourself. Very well put. So with that, folks, I would like to share, um, you know, our email with all of you who would like to get in touch with us. The email is the Ashlers podcast at gmail.com. Let me spell that. T H E A S H L-A-R-S-P-O-D-C-A-S-T The Ashlers Podcast at gmail.com You can catch us on Instagram as well. The handle is Ashlers The. Uh, somehow I couldn't get it the other way around. <laughs> so it's Ashlers <laughs> The. Uh, check it out. Our logo is you know the, the face of the profile. So you'll be able to recognize that. And as uh, Rinesh mentioned, uh, this 
you know we we are after all human we make mistakes but we are also open to improve ourselves so feel free to write to us or leave a comment um now while season 1 has come to an end season 2 is going to be another exciting journey that me and ranesh are going to get on this is going to be interesting because season 2 is now going to focus on you know scholarly articles written by masons from india now this is a platform for our brethren in india and you know we could we are open to having people from all, all over the world as well but we would like to focus on indian brethren to give them a platform to share their wisdom their knowledge with the world with this we are exploring and expanding our horizons as a podcast to not just spread the true information about masonry but also give a platform for our indian brethren to spread their wings to spread their light to the entire world so we will be coming up with more episodes so watch out for that i hope it will give you a more exciting insight into the scholarly world of what freemasonry is all about so with that uh, it's been a fantastic journey love to hear from you stay tuned for more this is shishir signing off and bye bye and this is rinesh take care well that just about wraps it up folks we sincerely hope that you liked our episode and got a glimpse into the fascinating world of freemasonry and what better way than to hear about it from those who are the humble members of the gentle craft if you have any queries about what we shared on this episode or generally on this podcast or even about freemasonry please check out the show notes for links to the grand lords of india's website or feel free to write us an email please do look forward to the next episode